Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. No one left behind. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. Here's your host, General David Grange. Uh, good evening and welcome to Veterans Radio Hour. This is show number four of 2.0. Tonight's topic is America's all-volunteer force. Is it sustainable? Our country's military overall is the best in the world. It has protected our nation for centuries with loyalty and performance beyond expectations. It is why this country can do what it does, what it is, free enterprise, land of the free the bastone of democracy, and a hunt country who can and who does and sends as brave and to harm's way abroad to do its duty. After Vietnam, when we transitioned to an all-volunteer force, there was criticism. There was also confidence that it would work. The decision was made, and the holistic task was executed. To keep the qualified numbers of recruits available to fill our required ranks in all our services, is a daunting task. The physical and educational requirements to walk in the door of a recruiting station is at a higher standard than many of our citizenry understands. Think that only one out of four between the ages of 17 and 25 can even qualify to get in that door. Once recruited, the indoctrination and training is fast-paced. It doesn't last that long, and our drill sergeants have a challenge to turn out soldier-ready recruits. Many veterans will tell you that our society today does not provide the seed corn, the baseline necessary, as a start point. Basic toughness, comfortability in harsh, austere environments, road marching with gear on their backs, sleeping in the woods in terrible weather, firing a weapon, eating and sleeping with an irregular schedule. What this means is units take on more of this burden with little available training time as it is, let alone adding more things to their calendar. And, of course, a new recruit comes into a unit and it happens to immediately redeploy. Is that, a, is that recruit, is that squad that he or she is working with combat-ready as a team? After a tour of service, what reenlistment challenges do we have today? What does the future look like? I'm going to use tonight and throw our guest infantry in Army and the Marine Corps as a base of reliance, as a base of reference for our program. Get some experts in here for this show, and we're going to discuss the good and the ugly tonight. Again, thank you so much. And our first guest will be introduced by my Ranger buddy, Ranger Duck. And now for a word from our sponsors. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Welcome back to the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, where tonight our topic will be a discussion of the all-volunteer force. Tonight's show, I would like to welcome back Command Sergeant Major Rick Lamb. As many of you know, he's been with us before on the show. He's got a strong base as an infantryman, Airborne Ranger, Special Operations in the SF community. He's Command Sergeant Major of several different organizations, SOCOM and in Korea. For me, what's, uh, what makes him very much worthwhile to a show like this for all you veterans out there is where he really made his name by setting the example as a corporal in Hard Rock Charlie, first the 75th Rangers. That was a company commander. He was a corporal. And those out there that are infantrymen know, a point to remember that the corporal sets the tone for combat. The corporal's the one at the head of the, the V, the wedge formation. He's the one that takes the trench line. He's the one that takes out the bunker. So a corporal's perspective is never forgotten, and he's going to set the tone in our subject tonight, I believe, quite well. So, Sergeant Major, if you would, please, let's just start out with your perspective on a few of the few topics that come to mind, the good, the not-so-good, or otherwise challenges that we have now and we have ahead with America's all-volunteer force. Go ahead. Hey, thank you, sir, for that uh, that great introduction. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the first man that I met in the Rangers was Corporal Dozier. And he said, I am your fire team leader. My motto is follow me and do as I do. And uh, I was smart enough to actually model my the rest of my career after that young man. So hey, this discussion is, is aptly timed. I mean, we've been wrestling with this for a while now. Uh, you know, I work for the uh, Global Soft Foundation, and uh, we run an overseas event in Europe once a year. So we just finished up in Poland. So during our recent uh, GSF symposium in, in, in Poland, we ran a recruiting and retention panel. And uh, so we had a female psychologist on the panel. And, uh, again, this is, she was small, she's petite, easy to dismiss, you know, just push over in a corner, you know, when you're in a high testosterone environment. But she was also a chief warrant officer for in the Army. I mean, she had skills. She was brilliant. And, and it was, it was amazing to watch her because within minutes she owned that room. And she did it through wit, through wisdom and intellect. And, uh, it was just, it was an amazing thing to watch. I, I, I could have listened to her, to her for hours. But, uh, her, she, she has recently authored a study on internet interdiction, right? Not porn addiction, because I asked that. I said, are you talking about porn addiction? She said, no, Internet, addiction to the physical Internet. And she explained that with this, when each, within each generation, 
how technology and poor parenting, in effect, has made uh, successive generations kind of soft and afraid. And uh, so we, we forced our kids to wear knee pads and helmets on bicycles. We give them motorized scooters, you know, so they're not doing, you know, pumping it with their legs. Uh, they got rid of the jungle gyms. You don't even know if you can say jungle gym anymore. Uh, they don't push the lawnmower. They don't shovel the snow. They don't bale the hail or deliver newspapers because machines and grown-ups do all that kind of stuff. And uh, so we, we've made this generation kind of fearful and uh, and weak. And she said, and I'm not hacking on them. I mean, that's just the, the world that they're, that they're adjusting to, right? Now, the problem with the Internet is that you get the same dopamine hit on the Internet that the that, that, um, junkies get. Uh, when they inject heroin, and, and I mean, that, that, my jaw dropped when I heard that, that uh, the same amount of jo- dopamine hit uh, from being in the Internet uh, that, that a junkie gets, and it's the same amount of detox. It's about 45 days to detox a heroin addict and, and a kid from the Internet. So what I'm getting at here is the recruit, you know, the recruit base. Uh, the thing that was astounding on that panel is that everybody across the globe is facing the same challenge because all these kids are not interconnected. So due to technology like TikTok, you know, the World Wide Web, I mean, everyone is experiencing the same problem. So uh, the, the youth are soft, but they're also smart. But we've made them afraid. We've made them afraid of failure by giving, you know, trophies to everybody. We've, uh, they're, they're not properly challenged, you know, because we've gotten rid of all the jungle gyms and the things. That they're, uh, so their entire persona now is built online. Uh, their entire self-worth is tied to, to sometimes an avatar, not even their own picture, because they can't compete with the pictures that are out there because everything's airbrushed. You know, so the young men are looking at the nice-looking young lady, and they're saying, man, I will never be able to, to, to meet a girl like that. The girls are looking at this, this perfect uh, young lady on, online, and they're saying, I, I will never amount to that. So that's why the suicides are up. You know, the self-worth is down. and uh, But they still need this this purpose, and they tend to find that in social justice causes. And uh, so, so they're, again, they're products of their environment, uh, and we have to kind of realize that. That was her point, is that we have to realize, you know, who we're talking to, how they're being raised, and, and if we want to bring these recruits up. And I don't know if you guys have seen the new cartoon, the Army commercial, um, you know, with the, with the with the gal going into the going into the the ADA battery, and um, you know, she got the two moms, and and uh, she marched in social justice. I mean, it's a, and it's a cartoon, so I mean, it's, it's playing to you know, guys from our generation. We're looking at that, saying, "Are you crazy? What?" is going on here, but it's playing to the new generation of kid. Now, if you look at that uh, on the other side, the Chinese recruiting commercial and the Russian recruiting commercial, you know, it's still the same testosterone-laden, you know, putting the boot knife. And uh, so if you see that that disparity is what kind of frightens a lot of people to include me, because it is night and day. I read a thing uh, just recently where the Marines are looking at a limited-duty officer or a limited-duty NCO who won't go through boot camp. And uh, so that cat will show that that master guns or that uh, lieutenant colonel will share very little or have very little in common with the rest of the force who's still going through boot camp in that crucible because they need the low density skills. And uh, so so again, that's you know some of the so we're, we're it seems like we're trying to fix this, but uh, by fixing it, we're maybe even making it worse. And, I, and the last thing I'll, before I shut up the you know, technology, I think, uh, is going to be seen as a solution. Uh, with systems that are enhanced by automated intelligence and robotics, 
I think uh, you know, we will start, uh, the nation will start seeing technology or looking at technology to fill that dearth in humans or fill that void. And uh, we're kind of already seeing it. Uh, yeah, I think in the not too distant future, we'll see tanks, artillery, and aircraft without human crews. And, uh, and I don't know if that's just the old guy in me, but that scares me. That scares the, scares the heck out of me. Uh, Sir Major, a great rundown setting the tone for, I believe, is the, the baseline of the old volunteer force sustainability. I just think of some of the things you mentioned. I think of, uh, and Ranger Doug knows this, I think of in Bosnia-Herzegovina when we commanded 3,200 Russian paratroopers and would visit their camp almost weekly and how tough those soldiers were. Now, I say that in respect for them, not that they're better than our troops or anything, but I was awed by how tough they were the raw toughness, the ability to endure, you know, wrapping their feet, putting them in their boots instead of wearing socks under boots, what they ate for breakfast, how they did physical training, uh, just the, the attitude. Now, there's a lot of things I didn't like because I didn't care for a lot of the senior officers that didn't set the example or carry the same rucksack their troops did. That bothered me. But the baseline of toughness, and it shows in those commercials that you mentioned, is really there. Think about being on the DMZ. I thought about this commanding the 1st to 503rd. And thinking who's across that line, how tough those North Koreans were. Again, terrible regime, but a worthy foe in combat. And I remember when we did E-Tool drill, psychological yes. effect on them. Why we did that? We did that because they were trained to use everything at hand to kill us. And we had to show that we could use anything at hand to kill them. And so that toughness is there, and it makes a difference. And when people can't walk around uh, in the woods because they've never slept in the woods, never fired a weapon, and never was laid in the rain all night or walked that distance or packed put a pack together so they don't lose all their stuff on the road walking. Just basic stuff that just takes so much time to drill sergeants today. And I do think it's technology. I People forget technology supports the soldier. The soldier does not support the technology. So I'll end there. And uh, I'd love to hear something else you got to say about this topic. In all good points, I just, uh, you know, coincidentally, I just got back from, uh, from Fort Benning, you know, last weekend, and I was up there for, uh, actually Ralph Puckett, um, at his, uh, Medal of Honor coin dedication. So, uh, so I was honored to go, to go be a part of that. And I was talking to, uh, one of the young men who's, uh, who's down there, you know, as, as a drill sergeant, and, uh, he said they've added, the U.S. Army has added, uh, time to basic training and, uh, and infantry, uh, you know, advanced individual training. Uh, to, to cover some of that, to where they're they're now using a map and compass, they're uh, they're actually walking more. They're they're using iron sights. They're qualifying on iron sights, and then they also have the optic. And the reason they're doing that is because they see that the you know the Russians just shot down a satellite recently. You know, pissed her, the entire planet off by putting all that space junk up there. But the the Chinese have roped and shot down satellites. So you know everybody uh, everybody's going ha ha wink wink. We're not going to uh, we're not going to weaponize space. But they are taking the steps to weaponize space. And uh, so when the satellite falls, why would you not take your number one adversary and take his eyes away from him and take his, take away his ability to communicate and navigate you know, on day one? 
And uh, so I, I think you're onto something there. And, and it seems like the, uh, you know, that the, the we're learn, you know, we're moving that way. But you know, history shows us that when you can't protect your borders, you're going to get overrun. And uh, so one of the things I think that you know, we, the veteran community, you know, we, we we have to you know, get get active because we we want to avoid building the military that's incapable of defending a nation that many of the recruits no longer deem worthy of defense, if that makes sense. I mean, because you know, we live in this warrior caste. You know, uh, our kids all went into the military. The uh, you know because because dad or mom did. They want to walk walk like mom, walk like dad, talk like you know. So they they we've got this warrior caste, and I think if they if the change is too much, then we're going to lose that warrior caste, and then you might not like what you get in the replace. Because you know, we're, we're in changing times is, is the problem. You know, we have the nation have changed, the demographics have changed, politics now seem to like seep and jade and poison everything, and, and this is going to, I think, eventually impact who joins the military and why they join the military, and it's also going to impact on, on who stays and the type of force that we're going to field. So uh, I, I'd like to hit on a, a couple of things, just kind of soft specific, because that's where my my background is. You know, the, the SOCOM has got what they call the soft truths, and the number one soft truth is that humans are more important than hardware, and, and, and you, you touched on that before. And uh, so, consequently, recruiting and retention is the number one concern for U.S. SOCOM and the components right now. So, finding, selecting. Uh, Recruiting, assessing, training, uh, and, and then challenging that trained soft personnel enough for them to actually want to stay on active duty, that's becoming problematic because businesses are now looking for the same talents and, and change is, is so increasingly rapid that I think, um, you know, and, and a lot of the bar bets I think they're listening on, online right now are probably questioning, did I just waste the last 20 years of my life? You know, because it just changed on a dime. Things that uh, you know, they were doing 20 years ago are not the not the focus right now. And again, we don't set policy; you know, we execute it. But uh, but you know, the change is so rapid that I think that they're 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 challenged now to, to retain these guys and gals. So the reality, since reality is constantly being altered, the overwhelming amounts of information, almost instantaneous communications, uh, you know, all this is is kind of impacting. The force right now, and to make matters worse, that uh, there are more threats now than we have resources, and, and that's right now on planet Earth. The uh, you know, SOCOM is a functional combatant command, and it provides you know low density, high demand soft to the to the Joint Combined Force. I mean that's what they do, and there's physically not enough resources you know across the across the board for every theater to have their own low density assets. So you know, based on the threat streams, you know, Stratcom, Strategic Command, you know, they, they have all the uh, they, they they do all the the boomers, the nuke subs, right? So not every theater can own their own nuke subs. So Trans or Stratcom rather, Strategic Command has to provide those nukes based on need. You know, those those nuke you know ferrying submarines based on the theater and what's going on. So they have to share. Transcom, same thing. Transportation Command, they've got to provide that strategic lift. You know, every theater doesn't have it on its own strategic lift. You know. Big, big Air Force does, and then they, they issue it out as, as needed. So SOCOM's the same way. They're a functional combatant command, and they provide SAW across the planet. So they call this a, the Global Force Management, right? So I worked Global Force Management uh, from 2015 to 2017 in Korea when all the nukes and the missiles were firing, and uh, one day we woke up and, 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 and we're starting to set the theater because it's getting that bad. But we never, there was never enough soft to even begin to set the theater for war, 
let alone maintain the persistent presence that you require, you know, for deterrence, number one, or interoperability and smooth execution in combat. And, uh, and that was my biggest fear is that, uh, you know, we wouldn't have the trained assets that we needed at the time, you know, when the, when the balloon went up. And uh, because and then we, were, then we were always handicapping other theaters. So as we started focusing real hard on the Middle East, you know, and everybody was looking at Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, that left Southcom. You know, all the hard work that was done uh, against the the socialists and the the communist insurgencies down in Latin America, you saw that bubble up again. So anytime we take our finger out of a hole on the dike to put it in the other one, you know, you still you still got water leaking. And uh, so all that, you know, the equality is more. Is better than quantity. You know, we can't be, we can't mass produce these forces overnight, and then, and you can't get competent forces. You can't create them after the emergencies because, occur because things just move so fast that you're, you're, it, it's, you can't do it. So we've, we've got to figure this out beforehand and build that force that we need. And I don't know if that's re, reconstituting the draft. Um, you know, the, the services are the guys that fight the draft harder than. Uh, than, than anybody else because they, they just don't like you remember when we were first in the uh, I'm a product of, of that you know where I was allowed to screw up and then I was reblued and uh, sent back out into the force it was just too easy now for the services to say okay he screwed up he's gone and next recruit but uh, we're, we're running out of recruits one of the things that the gal in, uh, in Poland was saying is that uh, a lot of these young people physically don't qualify, but also emotionally they don't qualify because uh, they're all on medication. And uh, so, you know, we, we're, we're quickly running out of um, recruits that, that, that even passed the initial sniff test uh, to go ahead and compete. Uh, well said, Sergeant Major. Uh, I'm going to pick up on a couple of things that you mentioned. Now, as I said in the introduction of the show earlier, that we're basing kind of the this topic by looking at a, a fire team of four men, uh, basically infantry, um, Army, Marine Corps. doesn't have to be that. You can associate the Air Force, the Coast Guard, the Navy, everybody else tied to that. They'll, they'll pull out what the example is for their service. But I'm doing that because of simplicity of this issue. The hardware versus the human being. Uh, if you take a, a fire team, and if the fire team doesn't have the mental and physical toughness, I think that's the baseline. And then that leadership, starting with that corporal, and the basic skills that you articulated, like map and compass versus GPS, iron sights versus optics. Those simple examples, because things happen. Murphy is out there, and the enemy's not stupid. They're going to go after all of our high-tech means on smart munitions, on communications, whatever the case may be. And what you're left with is what we just talked about, what you just articulated. So if you take that fire team and you put them up against the spectrum of threats that you were talking about, Let's start with an insurgent terrorist four-man team. Outfitted, what are they talking to each other on? A cell phone. What are they, what are they, if they don't have a cell phone, what do they do? They use a messenger. They're tied into the, they're tied into the human domain on the battlefield with the uh, civilian population. 
And those insurgent terrorist four-man teams have what? A team leader with an AK, the number two guy with a dragon off, the number three guy with a PKM or some other type of light machine gun, and then they have, of course, the RPG. And that can already outrange our basic infantry squad, where if you cannot call in an Apache or a Mortifier or snipers that are not organic to your fire team, they outrange you, not only on the range and distance, but they could outperform you because of the caliber of the munitions. If you take a Russian, North Korean, Chinese squad, it's the same thing. True, and 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 again, the uh, the minute you crank your cell phone or you key your handset, the uh, your grid square disappears. So uh, you know, it, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. In Poland, we had uh, all the former Eastern Bloc countries were represented. And the nice thing about a, a symposium that's, that's not run either by the EU or by um, by NATO, they say the best thing about NATO is that the U.S. is involved. They say the, they say the best thing about the EU is that the U.S. is not involved. So uh, <laughs> it depends on your perspective. So we had all the, uh, the former Eastern Bloc country represented, and, and three of those countries are in gray zone conflict with, with the Russians right now. You know, one, of one of them's hot, hot and cold, hot and cold, but, uh, but they've, they uh, – they're all in either information warfare uh, with these with these cats right now, and uh, so this topic of you know how do we protect our borders uh, was front and center, and because a lot of them still remember the sting of living under the Soviet boot. I mean, we had our uh, our conference center was right across from the the, the 1955 you know building that uh, that Stalin built as the headquarters. Now, that thing is, looks like a gothic. It, look, it looked like something out of um, you know, a Walt Disney ride, you know, the Haunted Mansion. But, uh, the, again, this topic was front and center. They still remember the sting, and uh, they, they are hot to address this problem. So when one of the panelists said, uh, or when one of the panelists was asked, how do we address this problem, he said, raise good men. And uh, it was a, a Norwegian um, kid that a uh, man, I mean, smart guy, that uh, had just raised a an entire. I'm, I'm going to stop right now because I think I got Christmas carols in the background. Yeah, in, in, in Poland we had uh, we had all the former Eastern Bloc countries represented, and uh, three were in gray zone conflict with Russia you know, right now. And so this topic was front and center, was important to them, and uh, because a lot of them still remember this thing of living under the Soviet boot. In fact, when we did our conference, you know, right across the street was uh, the building that Stalin had built in 1955. It looks like uh, you know the haunted the haunted tower out of a Disney ride, but just you know, that, that 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 you know gothic block construction. So they they still know what it's like to live under communism. And so uh, one of the panelists was asked, how, how do we address this problem with 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 the, our youth? And uh, the the, the panelist from from Norway, who had just raised a uh, an army of female Jaegers, and that was that's a whole another interesting discussion on, on on how he was able to do that. Uh, but he said, raise good men, you know, raise strong men, and uh, you know, I, I came to this conclusion, God, about twelve years ago. And uh, you know, my son was was about eleven or twelve, and uh, yeah, I saw the stuff that he was listening to, and, and the you know the, the music and the way he was dressing, and it, 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 he wasn't um, he wasn't going in a direction that that, that, that that me as an old sergeant major liked, right? And, and I struggled with it for a while. I'm like, you know, do I get involved with my kid or not? Do I let him find himself? And then I, I thought, you know, I've been raising young men for my entire life, so what makes this kid any different? So I told him, hey, the the games are going up. 
I see is I see is spreading out. You know, so we're uh, we're not doing the Game Boy anymore, and uh, we're not doing gangster, and we're not doing goth. So pick another persona. You got until breakfast, and then we're going to take all this these clothes you've been wearing. We'll take it down to the to Goodwill, and I will bankroll your new persona. And uh, so he's like, Dad, you know, this whole world is crashing. And I said, Well, go get a piece of paper and a pencil, and come back. So he comes back to the table. I said, I've been watching what you play online, and uh, I see you playing, uh, you know, flying a plane with uh, with a joystick. I said, Do you really want to get a private pilot's license? And I said, We can do single engine land and sea right here in Florida. And so he said, Yeah. So I said, Write it down. So you want to get a black belt in martial arts? I see you playing those karate games. And he said, Yeah. I said, All right, Gracie Studios, put it down. And uh, I said, You want to build? You want to get a Brownells manual and build a pistol rifle and a carbine from the parts up? and then learn how to shoot it? He goes, yeah. I said, write it down. So scuba, you want to learn how to scuba dive? You want to skydive? You want to, uh, you want to drive off-road? You want to get a motorcycle license? And so, uh, so we wrote all these things down, and so I said, now sign it. Put four years of college and speak a foreign language, and then you sign the bottom of that paper. So he did. I said, I'm going to countersign because I'm going to be the guy that bankrolls it. So I will make sure that you have all of these requisite skills by the time you leave the house. And uh, I said, so flip the paper over. So he flips it over, and I said, uh, here's the small print, right? I will not be a turd. So he writes, I will not be a turd. And I said, here's the, here's the list. No, no tattoos. And he goes, Dad, you have tattoos. I said, I know. That's why it's on the number one on the list. I don't want you to put any ink on your body that you will come to regret. So, uh, so no tattoos while you're in this house. I said, no piercings. He goes, Dad, you have piercings. I said, I know. That's why it's number two on the list. So and it was run-ins with the law. It was uh, you know underage drinking. It was getting the girlfriend pregnant. It was uh, sassing your mom. Bad grades. So uh, I said, if you can live with these rules, then I will bankroll everything on the reverse. And uh, so because I, I, I looked at it as an investment, you know, so it's uh, so you either invest up front because all that stuff's expensive, right? Or you invest on the backside. So what I'm, what I'm doing is that, you know, I look at, I talk to buddies, you know, asking them how their kids are and they got lawyer fees for paternity suits. They get DUIs. They got drug charges. They get juvenile offenses. There's all these lawyer fees and all the other, you know, getting your kids out of trouble is about the same amount of money if you, if you apply that up front as an investment to keep them out of trouble. So you're probably thinking, okay, what's my son doing? Well, you know, he, he stays out all night. He hangs out with prostitutes and drug dealers. He's in and out of jail all the time, and that's because he's a deputy sheriff, not an inmate. So uh, it, it, uh, I think it's all an investment. You know, there, there is a roadmap that I think we, we as a nation, we as an element, we as a, a group of veterans can do, and I think that's just raise good men and women. So you got to get out because his sister had a, had a girl list too, a lot of horses. Well, I'll tell you what, Sergeant Major, um, you're a recruiting sergeant's dream. <laughs> you're, uh, you're coaching. <laughs> well said. Let me, one thing that, uh, talking about this part here is that there's a different statistics out there. Ranger Doug and I have been looking at several of them. One is that uh, one out of four youth between the ages of 17 and 25 can only qualify to even enter the Army, to walk into the recruiting station. One out of four. And when you start then getting down to the ones that want to serve, you can't just look at the military. I mean, you got to look at firefighters, police officers, EMT, all the other people that provide the duty and responsibilities. So, you, you know, you have to wean that down even more because those things are just as important as soldiering. And, and, uh, and it's not a whole lot 
then when you get down to it, to pick from, especially in a military that people know is a forward-deployed force. You know, we're always over there. Yeah, in most cases, yeah, it, 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 it is peaks and valleys, but it's pretty much a, an outward-focused military. But, uh, Sergeant Major, what I want to do is uh, give you the floor for one other, one more short topic area within this subject. You know, just uh, anything else that you would like to add in closing, uh, reference our topic tonight of the old volunteer force. Hey, thanks, sir. I appreciate it. And again, thanks for uh, thanks for the invite. Always a pleasure. I mean, I, I can't tell you enough, or thank you enough for uh, you know, your your role in making me the man I have become. But uh, I, I would do a couple of things. I mean, the, if you look at what the Chinese are doing, the uh, you know, they, they've outlawed the infeminate in, in boy bands and, and the male cosmetics you know, the, uh, that, that you just see sweep in Asia right now, and uh, they've kind of outlawed that. And uh, they said, you know, that, that, that as a young man, these are your role models. And uh, it's not going to be the effeminate boy bands. It's not going to be the male cosmetics. You know, it's going to be what you said, the firefighter, the policeman, the soldier. Uh, they've also limited the amount of time that their children can spend online. And uh, so we immediately call them tyrants, you know, and we will we'll say, oh, they're, you know, that's just the, uh, the, such a tyrannical system. And uh, so we don't need to mandate it from the government. I think we need to mandate it in our families. Because uh, I think if we don't, we'll, we'll be calling the Chinese our masters here within the next couple of decades. Because, again, it goes back to uh, you're not going to have the uh, – if you can't protect your borders, if you seem weak, you will be overrun. Um, so I think the weaker we appear, again, the, uh, the more adversaries are going to start pushing the envelope in, in the gray zone. And, and, and my biggest fear, my gut fear, is that we lose – you know, we, the nation, lose the next war without even firing a shot. So I guess that would be one, is we've, we've got to change the culture, and I think that starts in the family. I think that starts with uh, with just raising good humans. Uh, and the next thing I, I would really explore, uh, and I don't know why we're not, is another Lodge Act. I know they had MAVNI, um, uh, the MAVNI program, and for some reason that didn't really take off. But but you remember the Lodge Act. I mean, those were some of our best troopers. And uh, you know, the, the the you know under Henry Cabot Lodge, and I, and I can't remember the uh, Philbin. I think was the other senator. But this is in the in the late forties, early fifties. And if you were from a you know, behind the Iron Curtain in one of the newly minted Eastern Bloc countries, then uh, you just had to get to a U.S. Army recruiting center somewhere in Europe, somewhere in Germany, and uh, you raise your right hand and you, um, you you become a U.S. Army soldier. But now you've got you speak the language, you know the customs, you know the culture. And why we're not doing that with the uh, with the Afghan commandos right now, with the, the Iraqi commandos, with the uh, you know with with the, the Chinese coming out of Hong Kong, uh, the Uyghurs. I mean, we should be recruiting like crazy from those uh, from those you know, ethnic groups under a, a new Lodge Act, uh, and they earn their citizenship in five years uh, by serving in the U.S. military. I mean, nothing sends a, uh, a stronger message to uh, to Russia or China than to have people that uh, look like them, speak like them, and know how they think. You know, serving alongside uh, you know serving alongside U.S. soldiers as citizens in our force. I, I would do those two things. Change the culture through the family construct and uh, and look at another Lodge Act. Uh, Sir Major, a couple of those things could be done immediately. Some of them is going to take long term. A lot of it's going to is obviously tied to political leadership. Uh, True. There's, uh, the, the bottom line is, is this. Uh, and 
whatever persuasion, whatever people are, the bottom line is you have to have tough soldiers. You have to. Yes. Because who we deal with are bullies. Who we deal with are people that have no respect for human rights, and they oppress those that can't defend themselves. And they will not respect someone who is not tough. They have to know that you will take them down, that when you draw a line, you mean it, and that you will take them down. They have to understand that because they love to work in the seams, the cracks, any any weakness at all in the flanks, that's what they go after. So toughness. The, the second point you made, there's no reason why we can't do what you said in the uh, after World War II. You think about the 10th Special Forces in Germany at that time, all those 18 detachments, 75% at least of them, were from Eastern Europe and other countries in that area. And they knew the AO. They could speak the language. They knew the culture. And you're absolutely right. By using those that are allies, for instance, the Afghan commandos, is crazy. They're such a force multiplier for us. You know, Colonel Beckwith said, I'd rather go downriver with 10 studs than 100 such, such and such. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's the same thing. I'd rather have 50 Afghan commandos than a brigade of Afghan regulars, only because they were trained and still fear into the enemy. And so we ought to take advantage of that, and that's a great point. We're running out of time. We have other guests on tonight, Sergeant Major, as usual. Thanks for joining our ranks on Veterans Radio Hour. Out. Outstanding. Thank you, sir. And please stay in touch. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. This is Ranger Doug, and I have the pleasure of welcoming a good friend of mine, a great warrior, a great writer, and a great all-around fellow, Colonel Retired John Fenzel, a Special Forces Officer of great repute. I've had the pleasure of working with 
several times. And uh, in fact, I, I hope one day when I change jobs, I get to go to work for him. But tonight we're going to talk a bit about the all-volunteer force, meaning the U.S. military that changed over to become a volunteer force after Vietnam. And some things that I'd like to discuss with you tonight, I have a list of questions that I've provided to you. But, John, I'd like to ask you just to give a bit of background about yourself first. Sure. Well, Doug, it's great to be here with you all. And, you know, and I'm also grateful for the opportunity as well. Yeah, I, I was very fortunate. I, I spent uh, 30 years in our Army, both um, in the reserves and on, in the active component. And, uh, you know, it, it really gave me a good perspective. And, you know, I started off as a chemical officer and then ultimately became a, a special forces officer, spent the vast majority of my time in, in our Army doing that. And, uh, you know, during that time, I, I had a, a great opportunity to, you know, see kind of the, the tactical side the strategic side of, of, of our military, but then also the um, the, the accessions side, meaning the recruiting and um, an ROTC component as well. And, you know, so with all of that, it really kind of gave me, I think, a, a pretty well-rounded view of our military, and um, you know, I, that's why I consider myself very fortunate to have been able to do that. I commanded the, what was called the accessions support brigade, I think it's now called the Strategic Marketing Brigade. It was at Fort Knox, and we, we had uh, the Army's Golden Knights. We had the Army Marksmanship Unit, and we also uh, had all the big rigs, the Mission Support Battalion, that uh, traveled the countryside uh, supporting our OTC and recruiting effort. I used to tell people, you know, this brigade uh, uh, jumps more, shoots more, and drives more than any other unit in the world because that's all we did. So it was, uh, but it was great because we really, our, our whole job was to connect with the American public and and um, and sell our army um, and uh, and provide those opportunities to our youth. So I I, I look at those opportunities as is really I cherish them. Um, had the opportunity to work in the White House um, during 9/11, and also was able to um, to work on the E ring of the Pentagon a couple times as well. So uh, all good memories. Good, and you're, you're well qualified for this subject because of your close contact with recruiting, ROTC, and so forth that all run through that accessions command. So you had a chance from your perch to see everything, and I know you've remained in touch with people who are currently doing as well as being aware of the situation yourself through what can read in the press and so forth. So the yeah. first question for you, do you think that the all-volunteer force is working? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a good question. I, I would say um, probably, you know, it's not working perfectly, but... Uh, you know, to really answer that question, I think you really have to consider the context of whether the draft was working. It really wasn't working well during the late 60s and 70s at all. You know, um, we had the, of course, if you look back, the additional burden of the opposition of the war in Vietnam, that contributed. But then um, when you look at what was happening then, it was it was really far from a universal draft. It was more uh, conscription was far more selective than it was universal. And so, you know, politically, the draft wasn't popular at all for anybody. You know, for the, the conservatives and the libertarians said that, you know, the, the state has no right to impose military service on young men without their consent. And on the liberal side, uh, they were arguing that the draft placed unfair burdens on the uh, on those who were underprivileged in our society. So, um, you know, because they could, you know, the they weren't likely to get the deferments that those in the upper classes could get. So, And then, you know, our, in our Army also um, wasn't a fan of, of the draft either because they had all the discipline problems and a lot of them didn't want to serve and they were facing uh, a hostile public when, uh, when, those, when those soldiers came back. So, you know, we can look at the draft through rose 
colored lenses today, but you know the reality was far different then. And, and now here we are, 50 years later, and with the transition to, um, to the all volunteer force, what we've seen is really a wholesale change in that dialogue about military service. Today, military service is admired; it's not denigrated. And you know, at the end of the day, all you know, I, I think that the all volunteer force is really proven to be a great success and and for those of us who have been a part of it and have served underneath it i i think that we we can all be proud to be have been a part of it and you know and and then if you look at really kind of the major test um following um the institution of the all-volunteer force you know that was of course i think desert shield and desert storm and that was a, a dramatic success so um in short i would say i think it is working you know we can talk a little bit more about that if you want but you know, I think you have to put things into context, though, because people are sometimes very quick to say, oh, we need a draft back. Well, maybe not so much if you look at the history of it. Right. And we'll talk about the draft at the end, but I really have that here as just a what if we had to up the numbers beyond what the volunteer force can provide because of some emergency or, or something we got in that we found was going to be more difficult and last longer than, than and again, we just ended a 22 fight, but... It's not the kind of war that you'd have to consider a draft for, obviously. You know, at the end of the day, too, that's why you have a selective service program, and that's what the system is based on. Exactly. So you think the society as it currently is can continue to fill the need, in other words, provide uh, enough recruits or enough people that could be potential recruits so that we can keep the force filled? You know, um, I'd say yes, but, you know, I'd probably apply some caveats to that. You know, the the key term is, is society because our military is absolutely a, a, a direct reflection of our society, right? And so um, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what kind of military do we, want? do we want? Do we want one with high standards or one with mediocre standards? And, you know, that that question really pretty much answers itself because, you know, I, I think we can all agree that we want the highest quality, best trained, and, and most capable military in the world. But, you know, the, the real bottom line here is that you know, we need to have a professional force that's capable of fighting and, and winning our nation's wars. And um, it's just getting there that's that's the challenge. So, you know, it's interesting, um, and it, I think the statistic may have actually gotten worse, but, you know, when I um, was part of the Army's Assessions Command, which has now um, gone back to recruiting, called the Recruiting Command, um, you know, I think that the the statistic was that only um, 20% of Americans are, are qualified um, to be in our army. So, in other words, it's, it, and that's because of health and behavior and intelligence issues. So, I mean, you, you know, if you line up just 10 random high school kids um, at any high school in, in our nation, it's likely that only two of them are going to be qualified for military service. And of course, that's worrisome. But once again, it's a direct reflection of of our own society and. You know, we don't have a large societal pool to uh, to recruit from, and that remains a, a real challenge today. Um, you know, I have absolute respect um, for our recruiters and for our ROTC cadre at, at all levels because they're the ones who are in that close fight um, with, uh, you know, with the civil military gap, and they're trying to close that. Um, but, uh, you know, I would absolutely say, you know, that this isn't a, a military problem at all. It's absolutely... A societal problem. How about the attitude? Do you think that what's going on now may have affected the attitude of those who would be potential enlistees? I guess I'm more of an optimist 
there, Doug. You know, I, I think there's plenty of reasons to be encouraged there. Um, you know, today the, the active duty population is younger than the overall, um, uh, you know, DOD or civil service sector. You know, 49% of the active duty force is between the ages of 17 and 24 years old. And, you know, and that that's pretty amazing when you think about it. So in other words, people, you know, are, you know, these kids are, are, are far more apt to join the military than they are um, to become civil servants. Um, and, you know, and, and today, uh, if you want to put it even further into a historical perspective, 15% of the active duty um, enlisted force is female compared with 2% when the draft ended, and I think it was 1973. So, you know, and, and then today the, the officer corps, 16% of the officer corps is female, but despite that, you know, still women are, are, are still underrepresented. Um, so, you know, but overall when you look at those statistics, you, you know, it, it's pretty encouraging um, when, when you think about it. The, you know, 92% of the new accessions to the active duty are, are now high school graduates, and, you know, and that's a dramatic increase from the goal in 1973, which was then 45%. So, you know, there's, there's definitely room for improvement, and, you know, today's recruits, you know, come – Mostly from the middle and lower middle class uh, classes, but the in the upper class isn't represented at all. I kind of call that the, the fortunate son syndrome. You know, so that's something that we still have to work on. The the all volunteer force hasn't fixed that problem, but you know these these recruiters um, really have the burden of, of of bringing these kids on, and and, and how they do it, they've absolutely got to be um, innovative in their approach. They've got to be aspirational leaders. Um, and, and, and not only that, they, they, they really do need to know how to sell our, our, you know, whatever service you're talking about, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, they have to be able to sell. And that's not something that's taught in, our, in, our ba in their basic training, you know. It, it has to come by naturally, and it's not something they can really, you know, learn in a, in a course. So, um, so those guys, um, you know, on both sides of the equation, um, it, it's not easy, but I think that um, when you look at those statistics that I mentioned, it, it, it really kind of demonstrates that there is a pretty good attitude still towards enlisting, but it's, it's, it's a constant battle, and it's something you always have to be able to maintain. It's like one of those, those glass balls that just can't drop. Yes, and we have several of those in the air at one time. So you've, you've covered something I was going to ask about qualified recruits and what you've just discussed. Then the issue becomes... Okay, we want them for at least a term, but we really need them for more than a term because so much is, is invested in the soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman, uh, that by the time they get ready to re-enlist, we, we really have to take a look at how we're doing in, in the re-enlistment area. And I'm uh, aware of some things that have been said to be potential disruptors to that, but many of these things we'll just have to bear out. Like, for example, people say the current generation isn't prone to serve. Well, it's not really proving that way, and they're proving to be fairly hard-nosed in certain areas based on recent polls. So they may actually be a much better crop of, of recruits. And I have some ideas I'll talk about at the end regarding the current situation and generally how it may affect uh, the, the incoming uh, cohort. But uh, what do you think about reenlistment? What are some things that can be done or that are being done or perhaps we missed doing to aid in reenlisting? Yeah, you know, it, it's far more art than science, I'd say, Doug. You know, um, as you know, retention um, absolutely pivots on, on reenlistment, and, and reenlisting is 
one of the, the foundational cornerstones of, of our all-volunteer force. And so, um, and so with re-enlisting, you get, that, you know, that, that professionalism and all the technical expertise, the, that layered force structure that you don't get with a, with a draft military. Um, and, you know, and then the other thing about, about the re-enlistment piece of this is that, you know, you get a, a, a force that I think um, stays in longer and it's, it's more highly educated than you ever would with a conscription military. So, you know, what we have today, I, I think, is, is a military force that's really, you know, pretty representative of, of, of the American people. But, you know, once again, um, it, it really comes down to leadership because you're not going to get people who re-enlist without really great leaders in those units. And, and, if, and if the unit isn't well led, we've all seen what happens when, um, when, when you've got that dynamic and you don't get the, the re-enlistment piece that, um, rate that you, that you really hope for. So it's, uh, you know, whether it's getting qualified recruits or, or, or re-enlistments, you know, all those things, those are really kind of the cornerstones of, of your all-volunteer force and, and it requires a constant effort. Um, and, and I'll tell you what, it, it also requires, you know, a level of innovation that, you know, probably, you know, our civilian counterparts don't even really think about. You know, I, I can recall, uh, you know, when it, um, I'm kind of bouncing here between um, between recruiting and re-enlistment, but, you know, I can remember um, seeing a, a recruiter once who was an expert rapper. <laughs> he would get out in front of these these kids in, in these high schools and he would be rapping with them. And then another one would be breakdancing, you know, and and I asked, you know, my sergeant major. I said, I said, do they do they really feel like they need to do that? And he said, sir, you have no idea what they've got to do in order to be able to get these kids in, you know. And and it requires the same level of innovation, um, I think, on the same level of leadership to uh, to get people to reenlist at times, you know, so that you you have to be able to make them see that opportunity that's um, in front of them in the short term, but also in the long term. How do you make a career? out of the military, and how do you communicate that? Yeah, it's definitely a very sophisticated process. And, you know, when you're in it and don't realize all that's going on, it seems as if it's always been this way, but it's really not. It's changing all the time. If you went back to Sparta and worked forward, the things about soldiering have changed so much. But I think you hit on something really important. When the recruiter has the ability to sell, the, the person at the first training site has to have the ability to receive and show the, the recruit that what they signed up for is what they're actually going to get and do, and then move beyond that to the first unit experience, because that's what will lead to a reenlistment. And I wonder if we've actually got those tied together in all services and all, all parts of the services, because uh, I can remember coming through and feeling as there was a general pull that wanted to keep me in the service, but I never felt at any time other than the fact that I seemed to always have good leaders in the units I was in, that there was ever anything that was oriented on me staying in. I was a volunteer, and I could leave at any time. The thing that happened, though, was the challenges became so interesting and challenging that I always thought that if I was to leave, I would be a quitter. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that's the same way people are stimulated today. In other words, we came in, I came in in a very harsh environment, first going to a basic training organization, and then the next experience was ranger school. And then yeah. I was in, I was in as a young officer, and it was always I dare you to quit, and that motivated <laughs> our group to saying, well, we aren't going to quit. And so, you know, twenty years later, you wake up and you're a lieutenant colonel, and you still don't feel like quitting. In fact, it's more fun then 
but you've gotten used to privation and other things that actually probably make you a pretty good candidate to be a combat leader. And then if your training has brought you to the right level or you've had several fights before that, obviously you can function well when you hit the ground in, in a real operation that takes the command skills one needs in combat. But I'm wondering how we address that in the latest groups because, of course, the, the, the style of leadership, the, the type of uh, cadet or uh, you know, West Point ROTC or enlistee that you get, uh, Naval Academy and Air Force Academy, Coast Guard Academy included, uh, I wonder what, what the mindset is, is of kids and with, if they're welcome these days with the kind of environment that I and probably you faced, do they stay around at all? And I have a feeling they don't get welcome to that mindset and uh, they don't join that mindset until perhaps later in their career. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think it is evolutionary, but I also think it's generational, too. I mean, and you, you touched on it, Doug. You know, it, the thing is, is that, first of all, if you're a recruiter, the good recruiters don't focus on the kid right away um, that they're trying to recruit. They focus on the parents because mm -hmm. if they can't convince the parents, then um, then that young man and that young woman is not going to join um, the you know any of the services, period, and, and they know that. But then I think when you get into retention, you know, you've got you've got this whole issue of uh, you know who do you have to convince then? You know, and and I would argue that it's probably your, the spouse because yeah. if the spouse doesn't want to stay in, then that uh, that that soldier, airman, marine is not going to want to stay you know, stay in either. So you know, it, it, it's, you have all these different linkages, and that's why I really say it's it's far more earth and science and. And, you know, and unless you've been a recruiter or unless you've been in the in kind of the Army's sessions um, arena, uh, it's really hard to see that. And, uh, and and it's far more complex than I ever um, dreamed it would be. Um, and, and that's why I just have absolute respect for them, you know, because they've got to, they've got to cross all these generational boundaries from, from the, you know, whether they're, you know, they might be baby boomers, but they're going to be talking to millennials and they'll be talking to Gen Xers and Gen Zs, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and they're all different, and they've all got different areas of focus. It's interesting because uh, when I joined, and I agree with everything you just said, but I, even though we weren't showing anything like what would be achieved later on, I had the same feeling when I got in the Army as I had on the championship football team I was lucky to be on my senior year in college. It was just, the, it felt right. Everything was just perfect. I mean, we were in the right place. We had a good enemy. We had decent equipment. We had great leaders. I'm talking about being in the full of the gap, too. But, but mm -hmm. the fact was, I knew I had joined a world-class profession, and within only a few months after the election in 1980, the, the U.S. military went from not registering on Time's uh, list of professions to being, you know, highly respectable, up at about 20 or so. And now it rests, really, if Time is still around, but certain magazines do measure it once in a while. Military service is ranked uh, very high on the scale, and that's been something that, to me, justified my feeling as a lieutenant that I was in a world-class organization that was capable of playing in a Super Bowl. And I think we just mm -hmm. have to think now about how do we pull uh, the mindset of people back to that kind of thinking, and perhaps it's still there in the service. And although I work uh, closely with the service, I, I wonder sometimes as to how we sustain that. I think from your comments, though, you would say regarding the draft, only if it's necessary. It's nothing we need to consider at this time. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, if uh, if we find ourselves in a, in a point where you can't under any circumstances bring in enough qualified people or willing to serve in our military services, and absolutely, yes. I mean, that's why you have a draft. That's why you have the selective service system. But, you know, it, it, where we're at right now, I, I think, um, 
I think that we probably um, don't need to have a draft. I mean, I think that we need to be prepared for it, you know, if, if the situation warranted it. You know, I also had something I was thinking about as far as how to assist youngsters today who don't necessarily come with the experiences and the skills that the, uh, the boomers had or generations before that. I know when I compared myself to the people in front of me, they had done a heck of a lot more farming, you know, rough tasks that really prepared them for the Army, where my only thing that I did really was uh, work in the Boy Scouts, which, of course, was something put together as a paramilitary organization to prepare uh, Brits and others to, to operate in war. And, and it was discovered that after the Boer War, they had not performed very well, the young youngsters of uh, the U.K., so I was thinking in that I had a unit one time that had 107 junior ROTC programs, but I found they only oriented around major cities. The junior ROTC would be something that might provide a ramp to enlistment or officership, and perhaps it would be necessary to spread that out a bit. And I had some great people in mind that we used to work with who could probably run some very effective oh, yeah. programs to help Absolutely. shape youngsters, many of them who don't even join. But, I mean, when you look at the junior ROTC program, it it shows – a, a very enhanced attendance record over regular students. It shows a higher graduation record, and it shows a, a better academic record overall than the average population at schools. In fact, it's almost seen by some as an academy within the academy. What mm -hmm. would you think of expanding a program like that to certain targeted areas to try to draw more people of diverse backgrounds? That we need for even certain branches or specialties. Yeah, you know, are we, are, are we talking about ROTC or JROTC right now? Well, JROTC is a way to get high schoolers prepared to join mm -hmm. and and give them the better school experience that enables them to be a better soldier, sailor, air marine, coast, airman, marine, coast guardsman, or uh, even become an officer through a number of different means. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of both. I, I think that ROTC and JROTC, both programs, are the best leadership programs our nation has to offer. And um, in, with regard to JROTC, you know, I, you know, I'm a product of it. Um, I went to the school called Marmion uh, Military Academy in Aurora, Illinois. You know, my dad went there, I went there, my brothers went there, and I, I tell people all the time, look, it, it kept me out of prison as a young man. <laughs> but you know, all just I, I, th I think it's the yeah I really do think it's the best leadership program for in the country for high school kids and then you know um, and, and it's a great it's a great deal for the the high schools too because the military shares the cost for it and all the different services the army navy air force and coast guard and I think the marines they all run their own versions of it now with with regard to ROTC that's the largest youth training and development program in the in the country you've got you know um i think that's if i'm not mistaken like 550,000 students um in in participating i think in almost 3400 units you know across the the country i, I might i might be wrong on that but you know um it's a they're just tremendous programs you know right now my 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 daughter is in uh, an ROTC program up at, in St. Joseph's University up in Philadelphia, and uh, and 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 here she is. I never asked her to join the military. Um, I I never even suggested it, and she said, "No, I'm going to do this." And she went off and um, and is in her final year of ROTC, and now um, she's the cadet battalion commander of of uh, for for St. Joseph's and Drexel's kind of combined ROTC program. You know, and she's just doing incredibly well, and uh, and she really loves the program because it's well led, and um, and it has a great direction. She feels like it's really prepared her 
um, quite a bit for future service. And uh, and I can tell you also, she's just become a, a fabulous leader. So I, I just, uh, I think the world of, of uh, all of the ROTC programs, and, and I know it helped me, and I and I see what it's doing for my daughter as well, and I've also just seen what it does for for those who participate in it, and and it's it's really remark they're they're remarkable programs. That's great. Well, John, I think we've covered the waterfront. Any comments you'd like to add? You know, um, this is something I think that um, it's a great topic because. When you talk about the the all volunteer force, it's it's something that has to continually be nurtured, and you can never take it for granted. And, it, and the moment we do, um, especially in the face of a major conflict or a crisis, um, that's when we're going to realize um, just what a, a treasure that we have with the all volunteer force. And you know, I, I, I think all it takes is just a, a quick look back to see what conscription was like, and um, and I. And, and and I think there you can kind of see what the all-volunteer force has delivered for us in, in many respects. So um, it's, a, it's a remarkable history. It's a great case study um, if you ever want to study it. But it, at the end of the day, um, the all-volunteer force is, is, is really kind of one of the defining um, characteristics of, of what has made our country so great, you know, and, and we've seen that since the founding of our country. So anyway, I think that um, – it's a it's a it's a great topic and it's one that is you know it's always going to be um, pretty compelling and cogent to, to everything that we're doing and um, you know and I I can tell you this I'm proud to have been a part uh, of the all volunteer force. Yeah, well I'm proud to have known you and I'm glad that you and I both joined the all volunteer force. But the uh, thing I, I would like to say in conclusion, I think this period I've said to many has been. I think for people alive, especially the youth, it'll be like their depression. That that was to say our grandparents and parents if they lived during that time. I bet that there are lots of people out there who are going to find themselves in something that they've never thought of before, which is a desire to serve, a desire to improve themselves, a desire to lead because they will have felt very stifled by this period and the and the lack of leadership that uh, I believe people are, are perceiving at this time. I think a lot of people think uh, they have a lot to contribute, and maybe we can find a way to do that. What do you think? I think so. You know, and and uh, you know, when you look at the great leaders um, who you know have have served and have been part of these programs that we've talked about, I mean, these are the programs, um, and this is the, the all volunteer force is going to produce our you know our next George Marshall or our next Colin Powell, you know, our next Audie Murphy, you know, all these great heroes and all these great leaders. Um, that's what they produce, and 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 I really believe that what we're going to see, um, you know, we we have there's a lot of reason to be encouraged, I think, and uh, and you know, I guess I would just leave it at that. That's great. We need to take a quick knee and hear from our sponsors. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. 
At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Good evening. Tonight we're going to cover a subject that is divided into several parts. We're going to focus on the all-volunteer force. The questions I have have already been provided to our guests, but they will be able to speak from years of experience. And I'm happy to say that tonight I've got two great friends, both of them wonderful leaders, great men, warriors to the max, and they've been out and done it in combat, and they've spent years at it. I'm humbled by the fact that we are able to draw people like that to a very new program. So I'd first like to introduce Lieutenant Colonel Retired Dave Johnson, a Special Forces Officer. Uh, we've worked together several times. Dave, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, hi. Uh, thank you for asking. I uh, joined the Army from uh, West Point in 1984, so I'm a classmate of former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and the current uh, SOCOM commander. And uh, my time in the Army, I spent uh, in numerous overseas contingency operations, uh, started as an infantry officer and then became a special forces officer, third, fifth, and tenth groups, uh, Army strategist. Um, and I spent about 25 years in the Army. Uh, from there, I went to work at the Intel Corporation, building digital security platforms in the software and solutions group. And I'm currently the executive director of C480S, a, a cutting-edge Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit using data-driven approaches to support the security and prosperity of open pluralistic societies like our own. With the motto, Innovation for Peace, C480S uses publicly available information, high-context analysts, and emerging technology to map and understand the illicit networks that perpetrate the official corruption, transnational crime, and political violence that destabilizes states, prevents development, and devastates the environment. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. That's great. Great summary, and I'm really glad that we can that. I hope we can get to see each other soon. Morris, a great friend also, was with us on our last program, but his expertise is in this area as well. He's dealt specifically with not only the all-volunteer force and its recruiting and the issues that we'll talk about tonight, but he's commanded the all-volunteer force at, at multiple levels and several times in combat, so he knows not only what the product is and how it comes about, but he knows how to employ it. How about giving us a bit of background on yourself? All right, Ranger Doug. Uh, Morris Goins, um, born and raised in Southern Pines, North Carolina, just uh, west of Fort Bragg, influenced by coming in the Army by uncles of Vietnam and Korea service. Uh, went to the University of North Carolina, Pembroke, became came in the Army as an infantry officer. I went to Korea as my first assignment. Uh, spent some time in the old guard up in Washington, D.C. Uh, then I was selected, fortunately, to command a battalion, so I commanded a combined arms battalion in Fort Hood, Texas. A couple of assignments, then I was selected to command an airborne brigade up in Alaska. Went to Afghanistan as a brigade commander, went to Iraq as a battalion commander, um, and then went to Iraq again as a brigade S3 prior to battalion command, and went to Iraq for a third time as an augmentee from the Pentagon. Uh, while in the Pentagon, had two tours there. Uh, first tour was on the joint staff. I worked for the 
chairman. Second tour, I was on the Army staff inside of the G3 shop where I was the global force management guy. Um, so I had opportunity to develop a, a plan for the Army five years out of sending forces here and there to and fro and bringing them home again. And then last, my last assignment was as the chief of staff at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, which is the largest Army basic training installation um, in the Army, which is obviously on the East Coast, again, in South Carolina. Uh, since retiring, actually four years ago yesterday, uh, started several businesses and enjoying life on this side, uh, wearing a uniform. And Ranger Doug, it's good to hear you, as always. Over. Morris, I want to just jump back into your bio a little bit, and I'm going to do the same with Dave, because although we've talked a bit about uh, basics, I know that you commanded your battalion during the Arab Awakening in Iraq, and then you headed up the other brigade command that you had from the Alaska Airborne Brigade into Afghanistan. Can you tell us a little bit about those two? Sure. So a combined arms battalion at Fort Hood um, is a mechanized force. So you have Bradley fighting vehicles as the the platform for the infantry soldiers. So there's a rifle, a a fire team, which is five individuals in the back, um, four Bradleys per infantry infantry platoon. And so you have two infantry companies. And then you also have two tank companies, um, four crewmen to a tank, uh, four tanks per platoon. So a lot of firepower. Uh, We had an engineer company. Uh, they moved and rode Bradleys as well. You have scout platoons and then all the accoutrements to uh, go along uh, with that as far as the support, which is pretty robust because you consume a lot of fuel. Um, bullets are very large. They're not like small arms that you can put in ammo pouches. Um, they're, they're quite large out of that 120-millimeter um, main gun on that M1 uh, tank. And so that was the Combined Arms Battalion. It was an all-volunteer organization, so uh, several privates would come in from basic training after attending their AIT or advanced individual training, um, assimilate them into the organization. We'd do training events at home station, and then we would go to national training events, uh, and then we would deploy. Kind of the same thing with the Airborne Brigade in Alaska. Um, obviously, different type of organization. An airborne unit is extremely light, um, so it has small arms, um, M4 weapons, some some machine guns. Um, we did have an organic artillery battalion. I had an organic scout uh, squadron, reconnaissance squadron, logistics, um, and then a brigade support battalion and two infantry battalions. And obviously, an airborne brigade respond, in, in, jumps out of airplanes. Um, primary task is to seize airfields, uh, gives us a, a anchor a anchor point into any nation, and then we can bring in uh, through aircraft um, anything we need to to supply and push out from there. And so, again, all volunteer force um, in the uh, Airborne Brigade as well. So, obviously, it takes about eight eight weeks for a basic training soldier to get through basic training, AIT, depending on what their military occupational specialty is, or MOS. And then they show up. Officers and senior enlisted are a lot different. Um, obviously, they've been in the Army for a while, so they're managed much differently, but a uh, lot more experience. And so, that's the two the two organizations. Um it was awesome leading them. It was awesome being selected to command them and uh, made contact with uh, quite a bit of them, uh, to include some of the Gold Star families, that, uh, soldiers that we lost while I was deployed in those organizations. Over to you. You were in Iraq. Yeah. I read an article about you describing your spidey sense, and you were in a pretty tough spot from what I read in the article. How was it commanding the volunteer force there in Iraq and in Afghanistan? So spider senses... Um, we all have them. I'm just not sure how often we listen to them. 
Um, it's the voice that tells you right from wrong. It's the voice that tells you to call a friend that you may have not have spoken to in a while. I'm not sure why the voice is telling you, but if you adhere to it, um, it's been my experience that it, it, it serves you well. Uh, all volunteer force, um, they come in for a multitude of different reasons. Some come in like me. Um, as you well know, I, I had an uncle who was, you know, taught you well, uh, that was my mentor, uh, spoke to me, talked to me about the military. I heard all the stories in Vietnam and all the places that he had been, things he had done. And so I said, you know, that's that's what I want to do. Um, and so I grew up with the age of experience speaking to me from Vietnam and Korea. Um, the guys and gals that came into the Army as a battalion and a brigade commander somewhat different because most of them did not have military background in their families. Um, they either came in for educational benefits after one or two assignments. They came in because they just wanted to get away from home in some cases. So why they came in was just the gamut of reasons. And so it's really the challenge was to bring people together that had not really been in an organization that put so many demands on them, and the stakes of them succeeding was extremely high. You know, the success of your nation providing security for a nation. So getting them off the streets into the into the Army eight weeks, then maybe four or five weeks as, as their AITs, and getting them in and saying, okay, this is the part of the team. This is the culture. This is why we're here. We're here together. Nobody's going to let you down. You know, we may look differently, but we're on the same team. You know, you cut us, we all bleed green, as everybody's heard before. And then you just care for them. You know, you, t- you treat them as, as your own. You know, you listen to them, you, you coach them, you give them life recommendations and, and treat them like a human being. And what my experience has been, once they kind of shake off some of the dirt from, you know, baggage from a life before the Army, they become great members of a team um, and they're committed. And so it was an awesome experience, um, a little bit more um, leadership requirement, I think, on the front end, because, again, they are junior, they are younger um, than the special ops side of the house. And so it takes a lot more, I used to say, like father skills or dad skills or big brother skills to keep the team cohesive and together even through some challenging times over. Roger, and in your experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, from what I read and discussed, you and they performed superbly, correct? Um, it, interesting you say that. You know, when you say performed, um, I don't even know what you said. I got so emotional, whatever you, you just said. Um, we did well. I mean, we, we did our jobs. We were able to put enough pressure on the enemy to where people had the awakening. He said, you know, we could probably go about this in a better way. So it changed some mindsets, which is, as you well know, is significant in any population, changing the way people think and how they view things. Um, I think we did well. Um, took a few kicks in the teeth here and there. But, um, yeah, I think we did. I, I, w- I would probably give ourselves a, a, a B plus. You know, sometimes I wonder as a commander looking back on it, you know, if I could have done more, should I have done more, should I have made some different decisions than what I've made. But I think we do that to ourselves in life uh, as a whole. But, again, I'd probably give us a, a B plus. Well, thanks. And I, I'm not going to go more into detail, but I can tell you we have two men on the phone who have been there and done it close up, and they both have, from what I can tell, I've got a lot of friends who know what they've done. Uh, they both perform superbly. Thanks, Morris. Dave? How about just a little bit about your your time, and you've done some things you probably can't talk about, but, I mean, you've had a chance to take a look at the all-volunteer force as it's been employed in, in multiple fights, most likely. I haven't been with you in quite a while. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to catch up. But just tell me your impression as to what the product delivers. Well, I've been impressed. I also 
think if you think of the frontier days, we started as an all-volunteer force and then mobilized to, with conscription into, you know, the, the other force. So pre-World War I, uh, we were an all-volunteer force, and people have always joined, as, as the previous speaker said, for, the, for a wide variety of reasons. It's whether they get socialized to stay and, and how much uh, they, they move from those reasons to kind of the corporate reason that we have a mission-driven society. Um, I also think that from generation to generation, in spite of all of the kind of garbage people throw at each other, each generation is, is pretty much the same in a lot of ways. And young people are looking for leadership. They are looking for opportunity. They are trying to find who they are. Uh, and I think that uh, the folks that I ran into who are, of course, more senior uh, in my uh, field in the Special Forces, you know, obviously I left the infantry, which was the same situation, and they went into the Special Forces. Uh, those folks were committed. They were triple volunteers, uh, and I think they would probably look the same as any triple volunteer anywhere else, and they knew what they were doing, and it was, you know, it was my honor to serve with them. Um, people always say thank you for your service, and I always feel like I should thank them for the opportunity because not everybody has this opportunity to serve. They're not, you know, blessed with, uh, you know, physical or mental capabilities. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, I guess. Uh, but, um, you know, I think the all-volunteer force, the quality of the people is pretty solid. A lot of it depends on the training um, and the socialization and the culturalization that happens after they come into the force. Uh, and... Uh, the Army generally uh, has done very well. Each of the services has their own systems, but, you know, I was very familiar with the Army, and I've worked more recently with Air Force Special Ops in Afghanistan and at HKIA a couple of months ago, uh, and I did not see, you know, any reason to think that there was a significant difference in any way between what would be a conscript force or an all-volunteer force. If anything, the all-volunteer force seemed uh, to be, you know, highly professional, the folks that I ran into. That's great, Dave. And for those who haven't understood what HKIA means, Dave just said he's recently been at Hamid Karzai International Airport. Well, listen, that's good background because we can say the product that we have now can deliver. And I've seen it myself, and I think it's uh, it's really fabulous. You can argue as far as what generation is what, but uh, there are some developments we'll talk about at the end that are probably going to make the coming generations a lot stronger than they may. And, and I think that, you know, the I think that the real issue is not the, the quality of the soldiers once the military gets a hold of them. I think the the real issue is, um, again, in training, and it's also in, you know, are we able to shape that force to do something? What What is it we want it to do, and is it the right force? Because form is supposed to follow function. So I think based on your comments and on my observations, uh, we can say that it has been working. It's worked up to now, done well. So moving forward, uh, Dave, what do you think? Can society fill the need to keep the force filled at current levels? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that um, society can fill the need. And you said you had a key phrase there, and that's at current levels. Uh, one of the challenges that we have, I think, is um, you have to decide whether those levels are actually necessary. Uh, if you want to ask how much paint or what kind of paint you need to put on a house, you got to show the painter the house. Uh, and so, you know, what are the ends we're trying to use this all-volunteer force for? What are the ways uh, we're going to do that? And then that's when we determine what means we need to be able to accomplish those ends. And, you know, if you can't, if you don't have enough of an all-volunteer force that we fill this certain, certain, to a certain level, 
Well, then we change the ways that we do things because it's just a mix of, as we do in business, build, buy, rent, borrow. You build core capabilities. You buy those functions that support those capabilities. You rent force multipliers, and you borrow the efforts of allies and partners. Uh, so if we can't do it with the military that we have, well, then we'll leverage the incredible economic power we have or, the, you know, our informational power or, or our partners and allies through diplomacy. So, uh, you know, it's awful hard sometimes to answer the question of whether or not this all-volunteer force uh, is going to be need to, if society needs to fill it to a certain level, uh, because we don't know what we're doing with it. In fact, the last podcast, uh, I believe we talked about a wide variety of missions, far more than just fight and win the nation's wars, uh, you know, de declared war between two nation states. There was a lot of talk about all the functions that we've done in the past half century uh, that are not necessarily wars of existence. They're wars of choice or they're battles of choice, more likely, because they're not actually declared wars. So we have to figure out what it is we want this force to do before we decide how much we need to fill it, before we decide whether we can fill it to that level. Because, you know, whatever we get, we will use in a certain way, because that's the nature of, of strategy and integrated. And, you know, you talked, uh, my, the previous speaker talked about combined arms. Well, you know, I mean, the terrain changes and the situation changes, and you use what you have at hand. Um, now, in terms of Filling the need when we say, you know, 71% of today's youth between the ages of 17 and 24 are not qualified for service, mostly for obesity or, or mental challenges. Well, do we really need, you know, what number is that actually in terms of raw numbers, uh, you know, uh, and do we really need um, the, the volume of people or the types of people that we have? And, and obesity and Mental challenges are both kind of mental challenges. Can counseling during training take the pipeline and make the pipeline wider for the ones that we do get? Again, I think there's a huge challenge for training, uh, and and that's that's again a money challenge. You can you can look at money there. Um, I do think that we can fill the need or we can fill the current billets. It's just going to cost you, like that logistics problem. You can get good, fast, or cheap, but you can't get all three. You know, you can get two out of three. Well, you know, if we have all the money in the world, certainly we can provide more incentives for those who join for financial reasons or school. Um, you know, so there's all of these things have to be balanced out. But most important of all is to determine, A, what we can afford, and B, um, what we actually need. And I don't think we've done a very good job as a nation of determining whether we should be filling the billets at the current levels. So, Morris, how about you? Do you think that the society can fill the need? That's, that's an interesting question, and I, and I see from a couple of different positions. I, I saw trying to fill um, the global force management requirement of what we were, what we grew to know as the past chart. You know, how many brigades are going to Iraq? How many brigades are going here? How many brigades are going to Afghanistan? And then you get the all of a sudden, you know, President Obama says we're going to so we're going to provide a force to go to the western portion of Africa to help with the Ebola crisis. And so we're scrambling to maneuver these brigades around to meet these requirements. And then it's the the individual augmentees that, you know, we need to fill out the joint manning document for headquarters. And he's like, oh, my God, do we have enough force to? And so back to, you know, today's point, you know, what's the end strength? What do you want to do with it? But to your point is, do I think we, the society can feel what, we what we've asked? Um, and I would say, yes, we can. 
Um, and the reason I say yes, we can, because we always have. I think there's, you know, Dave alluded to it, you know, the 71% of the people are obese or have mental challenges, so they're unfit. Um, but maybe the 25% is what you need. And as anything, you know, we can always adjust either incentives to come in. We can, we haven't done it for, you know, in my knowledge, a very, very long time. Um, several decades of extending basic training to maybe 10 weeks or 12 weeks and then extending annual um, annual training, AIT and advanced individual training. Good God. So we could extend um, AIT as well to get to what Dave alluded to. And, and if it's obesity issue, then get people in, give them opportunity mentally to get, get in line and then reduce the weight so you have a, a larger throughput. So I think society can. Um, I think we have to, in some cases, maybe adjust some of our recruiting um, requirements, which we did during the, the height of the deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan. And we opened up some a few uh, avenues that weren't open before. We reduced some, some standards a little bit, and um, we, we met the need. And I think the nation always will because they'll realize that this is a crisis for the nation. So they'll, they'll rise up for the, uh, for the challenge. Over. Yeah, I, I wanted to kind of respond because one of the things, you know, there are many perceptions about how the certainly the raw numbers can be changed by reduction of standards, but that problem is then passed on to the units. Um, so, you know, if you were to ask people about whether they felt the difference uh, when we reduced the standards for, you know, mental health and other things like that, they would probably tell you absolutely they did. And it wasn't just the Army that felt that. It was the other services as well. Um, you know, so the question becomes, what are you doing with the people you get? And I think the previous speaker alluded to you know, having a, a better system of HR to optimize the people that we do have, you know, in order to make this happen. Uh, there's a lot of things we can squeeze, a little bit less juice left to squeeze out of the grape that we already have to become more effective and more efficient with the people that we do, that we, that we, that we, that we put through here. Uh, and, and obviously that was his whole function was to try and find ways to squeeze that grape to, to, to leverage the people that already existed in the system and find the spot where their talents were best used but I also think that there are people that we don't tap into in our society because we over-categorize the position. Often when we have, you know, an HR department, they say, here is a requirement. Five years experience doing whatever, you know, in, if you're looking at the civilian world. Well, do you really need five years experience to be able to do this job? Well, you know, how, how, how fit do you need to, do, to be to operate a drone from the, from the computer top? You know, uh, do we all need to be in uniform and wearing, you know, uh, and, and under the UCMJ to perform certain supporting functions? Or is there another structure where we can, you know, instead of, like I said, buying or building, we rent or borrow capability um, so that we, you know, yes, we both agree the society can fill this. I just think that when we get constrained, we just, we just need to get more clever, not lower standards. I was lucky to be at the Army War College when I had the opportunity on several occasions to walk the battlefield at Gettysburg, and I walked and ran the space of Pickett's Charge side to side and then front to back. I actually took my folks along it, too, and as the light dropped almost to dark at the other side, we were met by a guy in actual period uniform who told us he was the ghost of Gettysburg. But uh, I was struck by how long it took to move across that frontage, and, yet, and that frontage of about a mile you had 12,000 men moving at a run or fast walk. And uh, as they traveled across that, of course, they were whittled down to just 
a few who could finally breach the uh, Union line. But in Desert Storm, uh, on, a, on a frontage of a mile, in, in the advance uh, in the left hook, company of tanks, which would mean 16, 20 people perhaps across the French infantry, you probably had about uh, 40 people in that same space, but still spread out distance-wise because of the lethality and, and range of their weapons. But we're heading into a kind of fight now that I'm not sure we know what the frontage is going to be. And so to say, well, if we follow the trend from 12,000 to 40 or 20, uh, all we have to do is think in the next war it's going to be three people and only the drones are going to be fighting. I don't know if that's true. So we'll talk a bit more about that as we conclude, but I want to go through our, our subjects to take that idea into developing these following points. Part of can society fill the need is the attitude to enlisting or, on the other hand, to becoming an officer. Uh, Morris, what do you think the attitude is among youth today to enlisting or becoming an officer, for that matter, over? You know, the the attitude, um, I spent uh, 24 months as a chief of staff at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, again, the largest training base initial for uh, enlisted that the Army has. About 54% of the people that come in the Army um, attend basic training at Fort Jackson. Um, so it's interesting. I think their motive for coming in um, is, again, getting away from something, or I heard about this, or they had stories um, about coming in. And, and I think their attitudes, um, probably like anyone, when you first uh, first experience getting off the bus there at the reception station and the drill sergeants get on the bus extremely nice and, you know, speak to you, hey, thank you for coming in, and admit they get off the bus, just all hell breaks loose. Um, I think at that point it, they may ask themselves, oh, my God, what did I do? Should I, do I really want to be here? As we probably all have, as Dave alluded to, you know, regardless of how many times you volunteered, you may have asked yourself, uh, was this a good call? At least I did several times. Um, but I think their attitudes are where we want them. Um, first, not many even went to a reception station and even inquired, even less finally signed a contract. Um, and so when they show up, they're, they're in. Um, it may be harder than what they thought. And obviously with any, any course, you, there's some attrition along the way, but I think their attitudes are good. I don't know in some cases, um, if they realize, you know, it, what the cost may be eventually. Um, now, at Fort Jackson, you don't have combat arms training, so it's a lot of combat support and combat service support where the infantry folks um, go to Fort Benning you know, to, to, to their training. But again, I think um, for what they're going to do, they're in and they're committed, um, and they understand that if they fail, then the nation, and at least we attempt to teach them that, uh, and get it inculcated in them, that if, you know, if they fail, then the national interest and, and the nation at, at some point may be at, at risk. Um, as far as officers, I think it may be a little bit more challenging. Um, for some cases, you know, you have now the, the Silicon Valleys and, and the lure of tech companies, and, you know, there's there's a lot more um, things out there for a, a college graduate. You know, there's consulting firms out there that are snatching up engineers left and right. And, and so I think it may be a little bit more challenging for an officer. Um, I think maybe the retirement program, because now we are on a blended retirement program, unlike what uh, maybe the three, I don't know, the three of us retired under. Um, so they now have a blended retirement, which is much different than the retirement plan we had or we live under. And so I think that the challenge may be for the officers is the leadership aspect of it, the environment in which they have the opportunity to lead, and then really emphasize the skill sets that they will obtain you know, over the course of a career. Um, 
And so I think if we leverage that for the officers, we may be able to continue to, to draw them in, saying, hey, you know what, there's there's nothing like leading that organizations um, from a multitude of either three-time volunteers or people that have just like the dirty dozen, you know. <laughs> You're trying to get these guys and gals to agree to a mission and stop being fighting and moving forward. So I think leveraging that type of uh, opportunity for your officers may, may continue to fill the ranks, but I think it's maybe a little bit easier on the enlisted side. Over. Great comment, Morris. And now for a word from our sponsors. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life, like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. We're back. So in terms of the attitude, that's one thing. As I mentioned, uh, the potential for qualified recruits is not as much as we remember in years past because of a number of things that the Army has, although the Army standards probably are more convenient today than they were when we came in. The things that hang people up are weight, drug use, crime, and so forth. Do you believe we'll be able to find ourselves, uh, for all the services, enough qualified crews? I realize both of you have given an answer which suggests that it depends on the mission, depends on the size of the force we need. But uh, how about that? Is, is, is nearing 25 or less percent of the American youth today considered both men and women, and the force is somewhere around 16 or so percent female at this point? Is that uh, sustainable for us, do you think, or are we going to find ourselves having to either change standards or perhaps find ways to identify and attract people who would want to enlist or become officers and then give them the opportunity to learn certain skills kind of like the prep academy that we use for West Point in some cases. Over you, Morris. Well, I think Dave hit it on the head is if we, if we go after people that have certain skill sets, I mean, maybe we need to change some, you know, because I know that in certain certain systems, like in, in a UAD class, they now develop an equipped control for some of these um, drones. Uh, like a Xbox remote control because that's what you know, people are accustomed to using, at least the younger generation. 
And so I think we have the capability to adjust some things to facilitate um, them coming in or uh, becoming a commissioned officer. I also um, concur with Dave on his point of there's nothing wrong with telling the person the larger why. Because if I have the context of why I'm doing something, then I, I have a better understanding of why my role is extremely important. And it kind of goes back to, you know, what we, I think we still teach it, but you know, task and purpose, you know, what's my task, what's my purpose? My purpose is why I'm doing something. So if I give you the context of how this pertains to experience, this, this, even when we went into Iraq when I was a brigade of three, there's a lead platoon, there's a lead company, the lead brigade, and the only division there. So there's a, there's so please, Lieutenant, do not mess this up. Don't take a wrong turn. Um, and so again, I think if we do that, then we'll, we'll be in great shape. If we continue to be like the commercial says, you know, we've earned our money the old fashioned way. And they're all crusty, and they have a bunch of cobblers over there because they just refuse to change. And so I don't think that would be, you know, good for the nation because things do, you know, they do change. And so I believe that if we, we adjust somewhat, not completely, but we do, I think, have to adjust so we don't fight the last war just because we're sticking stubborn. Um, I think we'll we'll be able to need a happy, happy balance to um, being able to fill the force train the people, and then man the force, um, regardless of what the instrument is for. Well, you know, the, 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 while, we, while we have 71% of the population that's not qualified, as you pointed out, that is a huge percentage. So what is that population? How big, how many Army belt buckles is that? I mean, the reality is we probably only need 3 or 5%. So the question is, yes, there's plenty of room within the qualified population for us to recruit them. So there'll be plenty of qualified recruits. One of the challenges we faced is, you know, their attitude towards the military was generated probably by how they saw it. And you talked earlier about the war story approaches, and you talked earlier about the economic approaches and some of the things they may be leaving behind and all of the rest of that. There's plenty of actual people who meet the qualifications available, but the people that will join, that we already try to own, uh, and sometimes don't tap into enough, are military families. Uh, literally, I read an article in Army Times that said two out of three soldiers are the children of grandchildren of a soldier, a grandchild of a soldier. Um, obviously, that's not enough to sustain the nation. That's not three to five percent. But if we were able to tap into just a small portion of that qualified population because we're doing a better job of targeting our recruiting, uh, of, of, of incentivizing our recruiters in different ways perhaps, um, I think that innovation and new ideas and new approaches come about through constraint. Uh, and uh, rather than wishing the constraint away or lowering the standards, you know, you know, I think we can fight smarter, not harder. Uh, HR systems in the private sector are doing, you know, unique and incredible things that we could copy in many ways. Uh, the military often is far behind in, in these systems. Uh, my son, who was a captain, uh, went into ROTC and ended up uh, in construction construction management. He's always running into things like, hey, they think I'm a genius. I brought a drone to work. You know, there are, there are places where we can start being more cutting edge in our HR systems so that we can target that portion of the population specifically rather than putting out the kind of broad net. Um, and, I, and I think that we can do a better job of that because the data is out there. Uh, and, and that's key is, is, is better, better data management, uh, you know, all the tools that can be used to target those qualified recruits. You know, the short answer is yes, there are plenty out there. The question is why are we not getting them 
uh, and why are we not getting the specific ones that fit the specific goals and needs that we have, is that because of the way that we have approached this, in, in you know, I won't say it's, you know, not as, in, in, in a non-modern way to, to kind of cite the, the previous speaker. Yes, there are, there are new, better ways to do this, and we're just not necessarily using them. Uh, whether it's a LinkedIn for the military or, a, or, or you know, some function like that. Um, certainly, you know, social media and all kinds of other things, we target the audience that we actually want to fit the force of the future, not the force of the past. And, and there are plenty of qualified recruits out there. I uh, uh, commanded a brigade in Cadet Command, which was, of course, bringing in officers. And what we found was the need to find influencers because there were plenty of eligible people on campus, but you they had to locate them. And sometimes they didn't even know who wanted to become officers. And the, the big barrier that I found when I got there, on a mission of uh, 318, we were under it by 100 uh, in the first year. And I thought, well, we can fix this. And what I heard from almost everyone that I spoke with was, uh, we can't find people on campus because the professors are too liberal. They turn them away. And I said, well, then you have to go recruit the professors so that they'll get the idea that if they give you qualified people that they want in their army, once we own them, uh, they will come to think like we do. And uh, that's exactly how it worked, because although that brigade hadn't made mission, anyone could remember, and was the last of its class in the country of 14, we made our mission in two years. And uh, we jumped to number four, which made uh, things rather difficult for me, because it was assumed that we had to be cheating, which we weren't. So I, I think an approach like that, looking at influencers, finding the right people, uh, activating people who don't even know they want to be in the service, whatever service, and then finding a way, as a previous uh, interviewee said, uh, to take them through the point where the recruiter actually knows what he's looking for and is able to find a way to convince not only the recruit, but the parents, that this is the thing to do, and then presents that future career that then is handed off to the state, this, the place where the soldier is received, and then uh, there they, they, they pass the soldier through on a continuous basis to their first unit so that what they're recruited for is what they're trained in and what they go serve in. The more we can do that, the more the story gets back to the community through word of mouth and social media that this is actually a good thing. I believe that we're going to see about the service in the future coming out of this period of COVID and all the other stresses that are on us for the last year and a half or so. People are going to want to find some skills, get into a profession where they know they can do something, learn to protect themselves. It's going to function kind of like the Depression did for for my parents, at least, where they said, we never want to be involved in something like that again. Dave, did you have something to add? Yes, I, I, I think I see a theme here, which is, professionalization of HR processes, and it has an awful lot to do not only, you know, with looking for the you know, complete life cycle of the soldier from recruitment through utilization to retention to, you know, departure and, and having them leave us as alumni going out you know, with a positive attitude to help recruit and be an influencer. You know, so as we do this, this is the same sort of thing that professional HR departments do within large organizations and hotel chains and everywhere else. There are recruiting tools that people use where they post their, the, you know, the job title and what it does, and they, and they target those, you know, those particular communities. And, and I know that these kinds of tools can be used 
to um, make our process more effective and more efficient to hit those recruits that are qualified. And that touches again on those, that influence basis on, you know, the, you know a, a question I know we're going to come up against, which is the um, JROTC discussion. And, and that is the idea that you have people on campus that they see, because I saw an article, again, that, that identified that two times more uh, people enlist or join through our, or become officers or go to the Army from high schools that have a JROTC program, even though they may not have been the ones in JROTC. Uh, so it's more about going to them than having them come to your recruiting station, go out and add and have them come to your recruiting station. One of the things my, the best uh, chaplain I ever had actually learned how to cut hair and acted as the unit barber. And instead of expecting people to show up at services at some location, he counseled people individually when they got their hair cut, and I think that he was more effective. So maybe if you had, instead of having, uh, you know, have one of your alumni that is the uh, parent coach of the chess club, or, you know, or the computer sciences folks, because, you know, we're, we're looking into that space. So that we're targeting those communities and we're reaching out to them with people who have, who, who are soldiers for life, you know. Uh, and, and that's kind of, you know, we're mission-driven people. Just because we were in uniform at the tip of the iceberg doesn't mean our life of service is over. And I think that we could by taking a whole whole life cycle approach to the the soul, the, the the manpower problem, uh, we can have a much stronger solution in separating this off into stovepipes of recruiting, training, uh, manning, and uh, uh, out processing, and then retirement tracking somehow. You know, if we we could use our retirees in a much more effective way, especially those of us on half pay. I think you're right. I think if, uh, based on what you said about haircutting, if I was still in, I'd want to learn how to give many petties. But anyway, uh, Morris, what do you think about re-enlistment? Is it, uh, is it sustainable? Is it working well? Uh, what things might we do to enhance re-enlistment? Yeah, it's interesting. In fact, I, I was I was thinking of that uh, on an article um, earlier today, and it said, you know, increase, uh, increase retention. It was interesting. So as, as a battalion commander, we went to Iraq on a 12-month deployment, and it was the dreaded word of extension. You know, are we going to get extended? Are we going to get extended? And, and we did. And so we went from 12-month deployment to 15-month deployment. Um, and so after about your second or third deployment, people are like, and I don't know if I want to keep doing this, if the soldier's still in, and when I say still in, if the soldier's committed, then the family's like, hey, you just missed a year and a half of your child's school year as an example. So you know you, you leave the kids going to the tenth grade and you come back and it's de- you know, December of the junior year. You're like, good God, we've been gone that long. So I say that to say this. You know, if we make promises, I think we need to keep them. You know, so at one point there we had uh you know, you could not retire, you could not um ETS even though your contract was up so there was you know just extensions. And when you break those contracts, it was interesting, at least my, my, my position was this, even though I was a battalion commander, um, how do you ask a soldier to come in and, and enlist for three or four, let's just say four years, and you then deploy that soldier, and then you tell the soldier, hey, you know what, you can't get out, and if you, you know, so you have to stay here. But if the soldier goes AWOL, then he's breaking the law. Um, they just seem to be one side of the double standard, and so, I think if we want to utilize the folks that we have and say, hey, 
you're committed and you've been committed for four or five years or shit, whatever you whatever you've been committed and it's time for your obligation to be up, I think we should honor that because you it's a contract and you have the authority to break it and it's just not fair. And in keeping that contract and maybe to the point is if you keep if you keep to the contract and you stick to what you said, um, I think the morale in the organization will probably be a little bit higher. Um, I think that you give people an opportunity to break, you know, and maybe it's today's point. You know, when you have an individual that is in an organization as, a, as, as an officer, you know, they're a major, they're a battalion S3, they leave being a battalion S3, they may go to school, they go to another unit, they get promoted to the command, they go to battalion, they go back to combat. They're battalion commander, they, they, they go off to the war college, they come back, they command every day, now they're back in combat. And it's almost like it's never ending. Um, and so you're asking a lot of them, but if we're able to find a way, and I don't know how to do that, and I've spent quite a bit of brain power trying to figure it out because, you know, we like to promote folks and based on experience and that kind of stuff, and you want, you know, qualified folks leading these organizations and campaigns. Um, but I think if we stick to this is your retirement, here's when you enlisted, don't break the contracts, um, I think we're in a much better shape now back to, you know, maybe if we had a larger force, then you wouldn't have to get into that, you know, year home, year back, deployed, year home, and year back, deployed, you this. In, in some cases, that's what it turned into, which then is an insurance issue. So we somehow have to balance uh, the, the home a year, deployed a year, in strength, um, because the toll it takes on an individual in combat, it, uh, it, it, it just gets rough. I used to think I'll say this and, and, and pass it back to you. Is, you know, I used to think that my Uncle T um, and Uncle Allen had spent a lot of time in combat in Vietnam and Korea. And so I spent time, and when I came home, he said, good job, boy, you, you spent a lot of time in combat, and you have more than I do. And so you realize the toll it is taking on you. So somehow, if we, if we adhere to the contracts, I think people will be happy if we have the ability to give them a break somehow. I don't know how that is. You know, some other assignments other than keeping them, you know, in a year, back a year, home, deployed a year, it, it may help with retention. Um, because again, the, the family um, plays a factor on that as well. And so, the person that answered your question, I least gave you some insights so over to you, Doug. I think that's an excellent answer. I also am aware that uh, a gentleman on our first podcast who used to work for me, and his uh, code named Eric explained that he had done 11 plus combat deployments to Afghanistan or Iraq and had spent already eight years in country. Now he's part of the soft element, but that just struck me. And yet I was a fellow who basically received that young man when he joined the force and went with him through two tough deployments. And uh, he's performed superbly even commanding the same battalion that I did. But all the while I was in, I was carrying the lessons that your uncle taught me. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. 
like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. James, what do you think about reenlisting? Well, I think that we're spot on on the idea of keeping promises. Uh, I think that uh, there are two parts of this. Uh, the first is socializing the family. Well, the Army does a pretty good job, it used to. Then, fortunately, sometimes we think that what we're doing is appealing to someone when, in fact, we're undermining our own. So people are attracted to the military in a lot of ways. As I said, we're mission-driven people. And they want to know why they're doing things. So they want a life of need. And there are lots of people who, you know, like the young man you mentioned, 11, 12, he, he, he could have gotten out after four, right? You know, so, so, the, so the issue is, how do we make sure that the people who pull them out, you know, when my son chose to leave, it was primarily about his family. It was, it was absolutely, um, you know, the, the main challenge for him. He was very successful in what he was doing because he was a military brat, he was comfortable in the environment, all those other things fit, and all the rest of those sorts of things. But socializing the family and focusing on those traditions that show that we are different. You know, people talk about the all-volunteer force and worrying about whether it represents the nation as a whole. Well, I'm not sure the New York Knicks represent New York as a whole, you know, but they're still a professional basketball team. They'd be great at what they do, you know. And from my perspective, we need to make sure that we guard the Army's culture and that we show that it's special and different, and that, and that being a soldier, being a Marine, being an airman, uh, you know, being a spaceman, all of these things are important and they're part of the team, and the family is included too. One of the best things that we had in a tractor in the way was the DID schools. I remember being on uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and being released to go read the kids in school. You know, by, you know, the idea is the, 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 the soldiers and their families are part of the overall military experience, and we owe the family something, too. And part of that is keeping those promises, like the previous speaker said. But that also means saying no. The Air Force gets away with crew rest. They're not going to do anything without crew rest. Okay? Well, I get that the generals say we have to do this mission. Well, did you tell them what the cost was? Or were you so busy trying to impress them that you were that you were a, a, a yes, I can do it guy, that you didn't stand up for the troops, that you literally have been doing more deployments than we need to do. And also, you know, if I look at things, you know, and, and this is a you know, geopolitical discussion that I'm sure people will debate for, for years and years, you know, it was possible to fight the Afghan war with just off and the Northern Alliance and never have deployed the race, never, never have done nation building. It was entirely possible to have done that. 
You know, that, that, so the senior leadership and the leadership of an organization are the ones who've got to risk their, their, um, oak leaves, their stars, their bars to take care of the people that they have and taking care of them. I'm not saying coddle them and give them extra grace. I'm saying people need this rest to regenerate. And we need to establish what that rest is. And I think we've done a pretty good job at various times. We've kept track of the kind of days, but that was not enforced anywhere near strict enough. Um, you know, so, again, keep the promises, you know, socialize the family. That's my, my answer to, to, to re-enlistment. Great. And, and keep the idea, keep the idea that you're, what they're doing is special. It's different. It's not a job. It's, it's a, it's a lifestyle. Great. These are both great answers. I'm going to combine the next two and, and ask them this way. Uh, considering world events and uh, possible effect on the force, do you think we'll ever need to consider a draft? Morris? Um, I'd like to tell you on some of the dates that I went with you. I was in the Pentagon, and we were briefing some staffers from the Hill, and we were laying out all the deployments that we had to do. We laid out all the force that was available, all the joint exercises that we canceled around the globe. And established this there, you know, we're building our case and, you know, we've got people doing this, you know, doing that, we're doing it. And so, you know, the general says, any, any points? And the staff says, sure. You better say no. The Navy says no. The court carriers say we can't make this appointment. You never say no. So, because you never say no, you always say yes. So, what's the issue? So, they we'll move on to you. Your, your question was, um, about the, uh, construction on so I, I, I mean, obviously there's been uh, countries in, in, in the history of the globe that have done that. Um, I don't think we have to. Um, I still believe, and I think they've had the same position, of that small percentage of the doubt that people will come. If the nation is in crisis like 9-11, they will come. Um, I think the people that want to be in the military um, will come and they will give all that they have and then some. Uh, I can imagine my grandfather, who was in World War II, um, would probably, maybe he might say, I don't know what this war is going to do with my grandson, is, you know, if he's got the backbone of the Indian Army, I don't know, but I can imagine he would say that. Um, because I've heard this generation say, well, you know, I don't know if the next generation is prepared, but yet we haven't, you know, tactically lost the fight, I guess I would say. Um, I, my concern would be going down the road of, of pain for, you know, conscript army would be words of loyalty. You know, how much is enough? How much is enough? And, you know, once people get accustomed to a certain lifestyle or certain uh, accoutrements that they're given, then the question becomes, do we have to increase that? And so, you know, is your loyalty really um, in your heart or is it in your wallet? And so my concern is that, you know, I think with, with you know, with us, you know, the thought of somebody you know, driving through my neighborhood and driving in my country and, and blowing things up is just beyond I mean, I just couldn't take it. You know, so whatever the cost is to stop that I'm in. Um, and, and there's no amount of money that you could give me and say, hey, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going because, you know, I'll do something else. And so, again, my, my concern would be, you know, where's the loyalty and is it in your heart or in your wallet? Because sometimes a situation can get so tough. If you could buy your way out, some people may, other people will stay in fight. And so, you know, we, that's why we have a thing called all international cemetery. That's so why we have things you know, called the, the Medal of Honor. So um, I don't know if you could buy that with a dollar. Over. The question is moot because we can't have one. 
what I'm saying here is very straightforward is this was a political decision that was, you know, made after lots of pain during the Vietnam War era about selective service. Conscription is used to build a mass army. You mobilize and build a mass army when you're fighting a war of national existence and you're going to go out and, and, and the country will be devastated. We'll have invaders in the streets, as the previous speaker said. We don't have time to raise a mass army and mobilize anymore. There's no time to conscript a mass army for that type of fight, for that kind of war. So there's no time to conscript for a war of existence. And in peacetime, or when most of the country is at peace, or when we're fighting wars of choice, people are willing to give up their liberties and freedoms and be conscripted politically if they see that it's a war of existence. So in peacetime, it's not a war of existence. There's no threat worth giving up your freedoms and liberties. So we're never going to have a damn draft. Stop asking that question. People need to get that question off the, off the table. In wartime, war, there's no time. And in peacetime, there's no threat. So we're not going to have a draft. We're not going to get away with conscription. It's not going to happen. But we will continue selectives, right? Well, I don't think selectives. Uh, I don't. I selective service tore the country apart politically. Had huge demographic challenges with, you know, uh, minority populations overrepresented. You know, a, a selective service is is just not going to happen. You're, you're taking people's liberties when there's no existential threat. Anyone who will sacrifice their liberty for security ends up having neither. I think that was Benjamin Franklin. So, let's move on to the last bit, and we'll close out. Uh, I had a, an experience that was excellent in that brigade. I had 107 junior ROTC programs, but they're all grouped in the urban areas. But as Morris mentioned, there were some things that came up in junior ROTC or JROTC that were really interesting. Uh, kids got better grades, kids stayed in school long, longer, had graduated at a higher level, and there was less truancy, there was less absence from school. They also served as sort of an inspiration to the rest of the school, and oddly enough, I was able to go back with my father and visit the same school he had attended, where he was also a junior ROTC. So the program was extant uh, in, in the mid-40s, because he went from JROTC to join the Army and went to Japan for two years, between 46 and 48 in the Army of Occupation. So I'm suggesting that we need to consider some things that might be along the lines of expanding junior ROTC, using those people that you described, Dave. A lot of people that we know that know how to train foreign forces could be training youngsters across the nation to make them uh, more prone to join, perhaps more fit to join. This would be a voluntary thing. Might be oriented on school, might not be. And I also thought, in addition to things like that, which the Boy Scouts obviously was originally designed to do, yes. but the Boy Scouts are a little off mission right now, and they may come back, but I don't think we can count on them right now to provide a core of trained young men who understand what's called scouting, which is really kind of like the frontier scout, the ability to move uh, across terrain in the woods or wherever, navigate, uh, accomplish missions, earn, earn uh, merit badges and so forth, but while earning those badges, learning completely new skills that are not common to city kids so that somebody like myself, who was an Eagle Scout, enters the Army with a number of things he can already do before he shows up at his first camp. But I was thinking, if we did put people through some kind of training, like the Israelis do, where they spend maybe six months to get some skills, and they could elect to stay if they wish, but then they go off and do something else, but they stay in a kind of an individual ready reserve. Because I am a believer, after what I see in the unit that I work in, that does... Uh, the major exercises where we simulate combat across areas from, say, uh, 
Central Asia, uh, Europe, and, and the uh, Pacific Theater. The losses are such in eight days that it makes you think that you would have to have a great portion of ready people to enter the service just to backfill units, not even talking about dealing with the enemy's uh, fearsome anti-access air defense capability to try to keep our forces from the theater, or if we try to enter it, you know, sinking ships and destroying aircraft, meaning we may have to have more people just to go to war with uh, than we think. What do you think about some ideas, Morris, such as junior ROTC, expanding the individual ready reserve, something like that, and perhaps some kind of mandatory short period where people become acclimatized to what the service requires, and it might even serve to motivate and attract some people who would either want to do that or go into some other government agency, bureau, department, or administration over. I mean, I like the idea. Um, I was in junior ROTC in high school. Um, I was in ROTC in college, and so I, I, I support the idea. I, I believe in the idea. Um, you know, they have drill teams and competitions, and and as far as the Esprit de Corps and all those type of things, it um, I, I like it. Um, it exposes people to a different um, way of living. It exposes them to a team means that even they may not even play, you know, high school sports to be on on, on a team of in some sort. Um, and so they get an opportunity to learn some things. They may study. I remember the Russian girl in Afghanistan was a big thing when I was in junior ROTC. Um, obviously dating ourselves. But, uh, you know, you're thinking about things and topics that you may not normally talk about in other classes. Um, and so I, I would, I would support and believe that it would help us in the long run. You know, you know, to your point of, um, taking a larger army, you know, it's interesting when you begin to take a look at the strength and do we have the capability to, to house a larger army? You know, it's, you have infrastructure challenges, which, you know, in base budget and time and all that kind of stuff, you would have to address but the concepts. And what it would be able to do is, I think, work its way in gold. Um, maybe we wouldn't have to go down the red hole, they say, of a, a massive infrastructure, um, depending on the numbers and the strength. But I think the concept is sound. Uh, again, it gives the population an opportunity to see Regardless of what the program is, they're irrelevant to the Force Um Again, I think it exposes young people to disciplinary, um, which, you know, never hurts. And it shows people camaraderie. So I, I like the idea and leveraging people that are not necessarily conventional forces, as an SF guys or uh, special ops to be some of the instructors, uh, would be, would be very helpful. Um, cause again, some kids haven't been exposed to you know, those skill sets and, and ideas and, and ways of thinking, which I think most children would be, I think most children, most, most young adults would jump on like a bath on a spinner bait. You know, they, they bite their tongue and they get all over, but they shout at it and say, we're going to over. That's good, Morris. Thank you. Dick, what do you think? Well, first off, Israel is under an existential threat, which is why they do that. There's no threat like that to motivate our population. Uh, the JROTC program does a great job with at-risk youth, um, and it also has a small group in certain schools and certain places that, that can gravitate that way. Today's kids going on to college and going in trying to get into a great college are looking for something that's different, and that can fit into that. But most of them are very, very highly programmed. If you're training, even if you don't get recruited, your football team wants you 24-7. And you don't have time for those things. The scouts kind of die in about seventh grade because people start playing those high school sports. They're competing for the same kind of kids. Um, you know, it's, 
I think it's a great program, and I think it, it expands the vision of what the military can do to people who don't have time to do that, like those athletes. As I said, the high school, to have it at the high school, have a higher rate of enlistment and recruitment into the officer corps and everywhere else. However, um, you know, I don't think that's the cornerstone. I think that, and I do really, really like the idea of using soft because it's great training for UW. You got to train what you get. Not all of them are, are, are healthy soldiers, you know. I mean, it, it's a, a UW being unconventional warfare where you're training a, a local guerrilla force. And I think a bunch of kids would, would simulate that pretty well, especially if they're in a different culture, so to speak, different generation. Um, so you, you could use the training for the unit as well. Um, at the same time, I think we're missing a great, great opportunity. And I'm going to say this, and it's going to make me sound different than, you know, I'm the West Point professional active army guy. But I will tell you that we miss a great opportunity in the Guard and Reserve. Here's why. They bring in skill sets from their normal civilian life and a context and understanding and an understanding of, of, of what we've got going in many ways better than the stovepipe guys that are full-time. On top of that, they would be the ones outreaching within their community, and they would do a better job of it if they actually had the equipment and training that the active guys did. Instead of getting second, instead of getting sloppy second, so to speak, they get themselves, you know, great equipment, great training, focus on the Guard Reserve, and that becomes part of the total life cycle recruiting process because there's your outreach into your community. They're built in that way. The states know it, uh, and, and, and the states are leveraging them with relationships between guard and reserve units with other countries. You know, this is a wonderful, wonderful tool for by, with, and through into our own communities. Again, I think we're missing an opportunity. If you want to expand programs like JRTC, guard and reserve, I like the UW aspect of, of having soft guys doing the JRTC thing, but for having the instructors that's on the, 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 the chess coach or the, or the assistant football coach, that isn't a guard or reserve, now there's where your real game is. They, they look up to that assistant football coach, and he's in a guard and reserve, they'll think the same thing about the military, they'll get to look better. But that means bringing the guard and reserve closer, not pushing them away. That means giving them fine cut beef, not leftovers. And, and I think really that's where the, you know, we can really make a difference. Again, it's about squeezing that juice, the, the grapes that we got, and getting the most juice out of it. Uh, so that's why I think we can stand the same concept as JROTC, but I don't think we're ever going to get a youth civilian corps. Uh, I remember the, the Boy Scouts were built as a, in civil society by volunteers, and I think, yes, that kind of thing is wonderful. But just, and even if you sponsor a little bit by the military, but not all the way, you can leverage those organizations out there that are doing those kinds of things that are civilian, you know, leverage them without a whole lot of manpower costs and the rest. But we've got the people we need sitting in the Guard Reserve. We've got the parents of those kids that are coming up. And, and I really think we could do a better job of socializing them and taking care of them so that we're leveraging that to get this whole life cycle soldier, uh, soldier for life that we're hoping for. Um, so that's where, that's where I go with this is rather than, you know, expanding JROTC, um, do it better, but also guard and reserve. I, d I don't think we're going to get a, a military-led civilian, uh, you know, military-led junior high school, high school level um, core of trained kids. Unless, you know, I mean, you and I get together and we throw our money at it and we build our own, 
and prepare a bunch of kids. I mean, and who are we? We're retired soldiers. And doing it in a volunteer basis. Kind of like when we all came together on the runway in uh, uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport. You know, it's the right thing to do. We're mission-driven. Uh, but I don't think the military put money at it. Like the State Department gave us, gave us a letter of non-objection. Maybe DOD could put out a letter of non-objection for our, for our civilian efforts. There you go. That's great. No, I, I certainly agree, uh, and I believe that there are some things we're going to have to explore. Uh, exposure I've had in these exercises I'm talking about, uh, me believe that, in fact, uh, combat is going to be sudden and lethal, and uh, while we're depending on our precision capabilities to minimize our casualties and to maximize the enemy casualties, uh, point of fact, uh, they're going to oppose our decision capabilities directly, and we're going to do the same to them. And it may end up uh, developing into more like that bar fight you talked about earlier, where I believe we are not necessarily training the skills to engage in that if we are required to. And, and, and I think... Talking about people and weapons going back to their uh, original methods of employment, having to use line of sight and instinctual work, actual land navigation with a map and so forth, uh, these are not skills that come easily unless they're trying. And then it becomes a matter of how much time do you spend on the complex skills that involve technology versus the more simple skills that have fallen into atrophy over the years. Go ahead, Dave. I, I was also going to say that large portions of this fight are currently being fought in peacetime as peacetime competition. The resources necessary to arm these forces gathered up ahead of time, um, the, uh, uh, the ability with cyber to both physically attack a site that has computer systems and no key nodes, the ability to, to use cyber to assist a force that's already out there to open doors and do different things with power systems, and the ability of cyber itself to attack other computers, hostile account takeover, uh, denial of service, especially when we can see in modern society how linked and networked everything is that a touch at a particular node can have a massive impact so that fewer and fewer people can have a bigger impact. We've got super-empowered civilians now, uh, and things that used to be done by government are often better done in the private sector, like landing a, like uh, SpaceX landing a missile on its butt. NASA could probably do that with a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time. So when I look at where we are, I've had people talk about GPS spoofing and, and the impact. They say, well, our military systems are hardened. I hope you don't think the milk gets the theater in a military vessel. You know, I hope you don't think your bullets are getting there in military vessels. You know, or being made in, fact, in military factories that are hardened against these kinds of things. So I think that the, the modern warfare, the, the, the huge, the largest part of it is, yes, the military part of it will be, as you described it, but the military part of it is getting less and less important in terms of its overall outcome. And I think that we need to be aware of that context. And, again, that, that, that goes back to, you know, we need to do much more emphasis on our guard and reserve and do much more emphasis on, you know, the, the, the part of the recruiting the right people and not just a lot of people. I think you're right. I think as you say, quality has a quantity all its own. Well, gentlemen, i got to say, this has been a kind of a freewheeling discussion, and we've covered a lot of ground. 
Uh, one of the reasons we do this is not just uh, for veterans, but uh, we're hopeful that uh, the public at large has a chance to join and listen to these broadcasts because there's a lot of information we've carried over the four sessions we've held so far that uh, many people say they didn't know. So, once again, I want to thank you both for contributing tonight and uh, want to wish you the best. And I would also like you to consider the fact that uh, we would like to ask you both to join us again as we come up with new topics. We want to see this uh, program make a difference not only for vets, but for the force and for the citizens. Thank you for joining us tonight on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, where tonight our topic for discussion is the all-volunteer force. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the Veterans Radio Hour. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Veterans Radio Hour name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner, and its use does not imply endorsement or of opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives.